thank you for checking out the Travel Nuggets podcast. I'm your host, Christine Goss. When it comes to travel, the best ideas don't come from guidebooks, travel sites, or Google. They come from other travel junkies. Travel junkies are filled with interesting nuggets of information and ideas for your next adventure, once you get them talking. And that's what the Travel Nuggets podcast does. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Music Play. And to learn more information about the tips shared on this podcast, visit us online at travelnuggetspodcast.squarespace.com or join our Facebook community. To share feedback or suggest a topic or guest, send me an email at travelnuggetspodcast.gmail.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. Today we have a regular guest, I guess now you would be regular, um, Rick Antonson, who is a travel writer. And he has just come out with a new book, Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea. Rick, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. And I would love to be a regular. This is an important discussion for me. (laughs) Great. Well, I want to kind of flip around my normal um, schedule of questions, I guess, or series of questions and just go right to... Tell us exactly where you went. Well, I was in Papua New Guinea, as you mentioned, and to many people for a bit of orientation, Papua New Guinea is part of the second largest island in the world, which is called New Guinea. And it's second only to to Greenland in terms of of its, its size as an island. It's just north of Australia. And I say that knowing that Many of the people listening to this will, of course, be able to place it on a map, but it's so far away from North America that when the Second World War was going on, people used to call it war at the end of the world. But to Australians, of course, it was war on their doorstep. So Papua New Guinea is one half of New Guinea, as I mentioned. It's an independent country of maybe... 30 years existence. Before that, it was in a colony setup. And I walked across a narrow part of the country from the south coast to the north coast, part of it by motor carrier, on what is called the Kokoda Trail. So what I what I found really interesting about this trip is not only is this a perfect travel nugget, because a lot of people don't think to go to Papua New Guinea. But you also shed light on history that I did not know. Um, this is a whole new nugget here. I had no idea how imp- how much went on during World War II in Papua New Guinea. And so can you tell us a little bit about that history? Why was this island so important, and specifically the Kokoda Trail, during this incredible time in our world history? Well, I, I join you in your ignorance about not knowing about it. I I was embarrassed that I had never heard the term Kokoda Trail until a a, a neighbor, I should say that my wife was posted, she's in the the airport management field and she was general manager with the airport in Cairns and and, in Queensland and Australia. And it was a neighbor who said he was going to go on the Kokoda Trail. Did I want to come? And that was the first time I heard of it. So when you say that you didn't know about it, I think it's fair to say that most of us in Canada or the United States or many people in Europe are unfamiliar with it. Having said that, the Second World War, it was what General MacArthur called 
the, the, the worst fighting conditions anywhere in World War II. And what happened is this, that after the Japanese had hit on Pearl Harbor, they hit on Darwin in Northern Australia, and they invaded a number of other countries. They invaded Hong Kong, they went down into what today is Vietnam and Laos and so forth, into Thailand, towards, towards Singapore. All of that happened rather quickly. And they wanted to secure control of the island of New Guinea, therefore Papua New Guinea. They tried to do that by going on the ocean. And there was the, the, the Battle of the Coral Sea where the Americans and the Australians defeated the Japanese. So they went back and they decided to go overland from the northern shore of Papua New Guinea over what is called now Kokoda Track or Kokoda Trail, so they could take control of the port city of Port Moresby. And where I trekked is where the Australians and the Japanese fought terribly. You know, there are, are victors and, and losers in war, but there, there are no winners. It's just a terrible situation for, for, for competing sides. And then the Americans who were on another part of the island and the Australians forced the Japanese out of Papua New Guinea, out of New Guinea. So that's where this takes place. And the, the trek, which, which I was on for better part of two weeks, is really a, a walk through history. And if I recall correctly, if the Australians were not successful in keeping the Japanese at bay or driving them out of Papua New Guinea, the Japanese would have invaded Australia and that would have had a significant consequence in, in the history of World War II. Do, well, do I remember that correctly? That's correct. If Japan controlled Port Moresby, they were perched, if they wished, to invade Australia, and they'd already attacked Australia. They had a submarine show up in Sydney Harbor, which we now think of with you know, the, the glorious opera center and the, the, the walking around the rocks and all of that. But they had a submarine come up there and, and, and sink a ship. So that would have given Japan control of really important resources. But the other thing that Japan wanted to do was to cut off the link between Australia and the United States because the Allies were working together. They had a, a strong uh, a naval base between the two countries, and they had strong military base. So when the Japanese landed somewhat as a surprise to go over the Kokoda Trail, they felt that it would be pretty straightforward. You know, they had a few hundred horses. They landed 10,000 troops. The first they encountered were, were woefully unprepared Australians because the the trained Australians were fighting in Europe or in Northern Africa. And this is, this is in June and July of 1942. The, the battles that were along Kokoda Trail were about six months in, 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 in duration. Coincident with the six months that the American Marines were in Guadalcanal. Until the Japanese were defeated by the Australians and then the Australians Americans on land in in New Papua New Guinea. In the previous fifty years, 
the Japanese record of winning land-based fighting was 100%. They did not lose. So losing this battle and losing Guadalcanal turned the tide of the Pacific War to the um, to the, the sort of the, the benefit and the momentum then came with the allies of America, Canada, uh, Australia, and and uh, and so forth. That's fascinating, and we're going to dig into this in a bit. But your travel companion had a personal connection with this effort, um, and I want to talk about that later. But first. Another thing that really struck me in your in your book and the way you recall you know, this trip coming about is that you um, you were living in Australia with your wife and just moved there and some neighbors came over with with wine beer and you were just talking and Monk who um, later became yes. your travel buddy and friend just kind of said do you want to come on this trip and you said okay not knowing what you're getting getting into or where you're going. And I, I found that very fascinating because most travel junkies, people that are passionate about Travis travel, have their bucket list, have kind of a 10-year plan of the places they want to go. And you just kind of went with this. You know, you were just wide open to it. Can you tell us about that? Well, I'm, I'm easily led. <laughs> and all the more so when there's mischief uh, afoot. Um, you know, I just reread the, the um, Maltese Falcon, the, 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 the novel, and uh, Samuel Spade, the character in that, um, has a great line. He says, I don't mind a reasonable amount of trouble. And I, I'm, I'm game with that, and I, I enjoy the opportunity. But this, I think, was, was naive on my part, and it, it came about as you described, and, and Glenn, who from then on I knew by his nickname Monk, and Wens, his wife, came over to spend some time to meet us the first evening we were moving into this new place uh, that Janice had found, and there we were, and it was great. And he did say to me toward the end of the evening after we traded sort of a bit of, I've been here, done this, all that type of thing that you do when you first meet people, and he said to me, I'm going to do the Kokoda Trek. Do you want to come? And I will admit, I think my saying yes right away had, had a bit to do with liquid courage. And we'd had a, a fair amount of beer, wine, whatever. But when I said it and we shook hands, I said, there's just one thing, Monk, that I don't quite understand. What's the Kokoda? And he said, oh, it's a, a walk across the country. And I said, oh, what country? And he <laughs> said, Papua New Guinea. And I just, I was in, but I woke up the next morning with a bit of a hangover and a real hankering to get to a map or to get to the internet and try and find out something about Papua New Guinea because I knew precious little. Well, it did strike me though, as I, the way that you just kind of said yes to this. And um, I'm, I tend to be somebody that does a ton of planning and research and, then I thought, you know, and in my travels, there are times that I, I really was excited to go somewhere. And then I was disappointed. And then other places that I had zero expectations. And I thought, oh my gosh, this place is charming. And, and Georgia would be one of those, Georgia, the country, zero right. expectations. One of my favorite places I've been in the last few years. Um, so I, I thought it was actually a really cool way to 
to explore. And in fact, you have this great quote in your book where you said, travel that is too premeditated steals aha moments from a journey and dampens discovery. Um, So I don't know if you remember writing that, but it really popped out at me. Um, I thought it was a beautiful quote. Thank you. And and that's heartfelt on my part. I I do try not to over prepare and it does, I think for a writer, lead you into those little corners where good stories hide and, and, you know, writing quite often a, a journey and we both probably had heaps of them that, that is good and kind of eventful doesn't necessarily lend itself to sustaining a book length treatment. It it might make for a a blog posting or a a discussion uh, or a magazine article, but it it takes a lot of incident and anecdote. And in in my case, finding history, biography, whatever, to to have something that unfolds as a, um, you know, what becomes a two or 300, 400 page book. So it, it needs a lot of that. And I think if, if one goes into a trip prepared, one tends to see what one is expecting to see or has been told to be on the lookout for. If one goes in with a bit of preparation, so you're not silly, so you, you have the right supplies and, and you've thought a bit about first aid and, and, and food, whatever, you're more likely to, to to, in a pleasant way, stub your, your toe on the unexpected. And I, I do like that. And, and I, that's what, what the journey with Monk became as he unveiled himself in a totally different way than, than what I knew, because it was a, quite some time from the, the invitation to us actually being able to go on it. Took a lot of training. But, you know, when we were there, I would say this, that many people have gone to former battle sites, whether it's from the Civil War, World War II, World War I. If you're in Europe or parts of the, the, the U.S., now even in, in Vietnam, what you see today are almost curated sites. You know, the, the lawns are mowed, the, everything is, is rebuilt around it, and it doesn't look like it was. In Papua New Guinea, the trail we were on, looked and felt as it was in 1942, including some of the pits that may be a bit washed by time and weather, but you're still looking around at 17 shades of green, wondering what it would be like to have somebody that you can't see wanting to, in 30 seconds, bayonet you. You know, that's just a great transition to really digging into how powerful this trip was in terms of almost going back in time, you know, you're, you're not just traveling to another country, you almost went back to World War II and really lived, relived this history and, and um, immersed yourself in it. And I, I wrote down a, another quote, I tend to write down quotes as I read, and it said, I came on this trek for, for a physical challenge. I never thought I'd feel so many emotions. And I believe you write, wrote that. Um, I wasn't sure if Monk did, but I think you probably both ended up feeling that way. Can you now pull us back in and explain why Monk was so eager to do this trek and then really walk us through those moving World War II moments that that really struck home for you or really hit a nerve? 
Yeah, that that I mean, you've you've really got your finger on the 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 pulse of the of of the story. I I would say before I talk about Monk, I would I, I would say that at at um, two occasions we stopped for a respectful service. One of them at a, a place called um, Brigade Hill, or it was also called Butcher Butcher Hill. And at both of them, Monk uh, was asked to, both of these services, uh, to, to read the ode, which is, ends with it, what we all know, lest we forget. And uh, recently I was, was at a, a book event in Vancouver in Canada in a, a beautiful room in an old club with, with uh, about 100 people who had, had come for the presentation of, of the book and, and they each got a copy of the book and a nice lunch and, and it was really well done. There was a fireplace at either end of the room, book lined. It was, it was a, a wonderful setting. And I, I explained to them that when I was preparing to present to them, I thought, as authors often do, I should read a couple of snippets, a paragraph here, uh, something descriptive a little bit later on. And two different mornings, the week before my presentation, I tried to read out loud to myself the bit about our time on this Brigade Hill where we had this testimony to the, the fallen soldiers of both sides, but I was with all Australians, so it was mostly about Australians. But I tried to read this out loud to myself, sitting in front of the fireplace at home, early morning, and I started to cry. I wrote this, I was there, and I'm in my front room alone, I'm, I'm up first, I'm an early riser, I'm reading this out loud, and I have tears going down my face. So I parked it, and two days later, I tried to, to read it again, and I, I had tears rolling down my face. So I, I explained to the hundred people that were there that I would not read that portion out loud. I would tell them where it was in the book, but, but that I knew if I started to read it in front of them, that I would, I would cry. So that to me is testament to how emotional it was to be there. When you think of, of these, and these were young kids, most of them, I mean, they're, they're like 18, 19, early twenties. And, and, the same for the the, the, the Japanese. I mean, they, they were killing people that they had been told to hate on both sides, but that they never met, and it was atrocious, and it was it was ugly. And so to, to pause and have a moment of silence, and then hear the papan, the porters, sing their national anthem, just it's it's heartrending. Well, in. That actually did pop out to me as well. Um, you had these porters and guides and um, throughout your to guide your trek, um, which is very normal in places that are, you know, risky and dangerous. Um, they were very, very passionate about the entire group learning the history. They wanted you to know. I mean, they weren't just interested in guiding you through this trek. They really wanted you to understand what happened in these locations. You hit it. Um, they, um, they were such welcoming hosts. And this is, this is a nation of, of, of wonderful people that they, they have some societal problems right now. The rascals, which is R-A-S-K-O-L-S, 
um, dealing drugs and there's lots of violence and, and you, you need porters and part of it creates a visitor economy for them, which is, is, is a benefit, but you also need them around for notional protection if, if there were issues and there have been some in, in the past, but you're also going through um, tribal lands and, and other people own them and you've got to be respectful and you, you need through your, your guides to be doing some financial compensation to, to, you know, a village that lets you stay in their, their area, that type of thing. But the guides were wonderful. And there was one of them, youngish guy, maybe mid thirties. Uh, I ended up calling him guitar man because he, he would play a song when we're trekking along. And I think he was giving the porters and the carriers a bit of rhythm, whether we were going up a steep, steep place or, or on the, there weren't many flat parts, rather up or down. Your toes were either in the front of your boots or your heels were, 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 were digging in. And, and it, was, it was really demanding, but he playing his guitar. And you know, some months after uh, we got back, we got a note from, from um, Getaway Travel, the, the folks we uh, had organized our, uh, our journey. And, uh, and the note said that, that uh, Guitar Man had died had a heart attack oh. uh, climbing up one of the hills. And we knew when we went, we knew that in one year, four trekkers died, two of them in the same week because of heart attacks. Wow. So you, you had that as, a, as a, an emotional weight on you, along with the realization that, that the people who died there did so in, in just the, you know, gross circumstances, but they also died in, in a way that has given us the lives and the freedoms that in North America and Europe, we now sometimes take for granted. So then circling back to Monk, he has a personal connection with this uh, that you were not aware of when you first started. Uh, pull us in on that. What was Monk's story? So the night before we left, Janice and, and Wins and Monk and I had dinner at their place, which, I mean, this, Australians always, you have to love them for this. They show up as advertised. None of them are stereotypes. They, there'll be, you know, beer, barbecue, everything. It's absolutely delightful. And, and I would say some of the most authentic people on, on, on the planet. And so we're at their place and there's beer, the barbecue, all of this. And Wentz and Janice have sort of drifted away to leave Muck and myself a, a bit of a, we're leaving the next day time together. And we've got out our map that's now all marked up and everything. And, and Monk said to me, my old man was on the Kokoda. And it was the first time that he ever mentioned that. So the next day we're, we're off. And, and the story of him and his dad is fraught. His dad abandoned the family, which was Monk's mom, his sister, and himself, when Monk was only 10 years old, and disappeared. So later on, Monk you know, found out that his dad had, during the war, fought along Kokoda. And so this became a, a, a trek that, and I, I write about this be, in, in, as though in real time, because it's how it honestly occurred. Each day I learn a bit more about Monk, but he was learning about his dad, but he was sharing with me things that I don't think he said out loud to anybody other than, than perhaps 
his, his, his partner. And, and, and it was, it was revealing about his, his father, the, the misdemeanors, the, the behavioral traits. And, and it, it peaks a couple times in, in the telling. And I will say that, that when we got to what was our last night on the trail, there is, it's a place that has a, that was a major battle. And there's now a, a military tribute there created by the Australian government. And they have engravings on, on metal plaques in several places. And one of them, one of them was spinning image, according to Monk, of his father. And this is a man he cursed and says unkind things of that I won't repeat here, but they're in print in the book. And, and yet he somewhat reconciled um, with a man that, that he, he'd grown through his teens and early life hating. And, and he, he, um, he resolved some of that. And he would not have done that if he'd not been on the Kokoda Trail. Well, so he he really wanted to get to know his father by walking in his father's footsteps. And he did that. And it, you're right. He said a lot of unkind things. But throughout the book and by the end of it and doing and we're going to talk about the difficulty of this trek and the monuments throughout. But by the end of it, he did have a little bit of an admiration for us. I felt like he he was able to have a little bit of a kinder view towards his dad for what he went through. Um, you know, not completely reconciled, of course, but I, I do think he was able to, to maybe have a little more compassion or respect. Yeah. Well, well said. I, 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 I think you've, you've picked the right word respect and grudging respect. If, if we yeah. can add a, uh, something accented, but but yeah, you you begin to realize that anybody anybody that was part of that horrible escapade is is worthy of 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 our respect. That it was his father whom he'd held in really low regard because of everything he'd gone through in their personal relationship. He, he now uh, could understand, the, the, as you said, compassion um, that needed to be accorded to those people. And then, you know, I, my 100% of my experience with war is through movies or reading or, or perhaps a, a, a trek like this. I, I, have, I, I have not faced an enemy with a weapon in my hand knowing they've got a weapon in their hand. And, I don't know what that does to one's personality to have a, a, a mate die right beside you. And you know that that, that was a, a, a wayward shot. It, it, it could have taken your life. I don't know what that does to your personality and how you then go back and, and try to raise a family. I, I, I can't imagine. And I think Monk came to the awareness that part of his distant dad was was shaped by by things beyond his dad's control because his dad was deployed to defend his country and harsh things happened. That's well said. Um, so then let's, you know, go back to the beginning and talk more about, or just talk about the trek itself. Now, 
One thing you said at the very beginning, Port Mosby, which is the capital, correct? Yes. Is one of the world's most unlivable cities. Uh, it ranks among with Karachi, Pakistan, Lagos, Nigeria. Um, and then a lot of the description of the terrain is rather unpleasant. Um, so <laughs> tell us a little bit about that, which is interesting, you know, for a travel book that, you know, you you loved the trip. I mean, it, it feels this trip really made an impression on you, but it wasn't filled with the same, oh, beautiful landscape and wonderful food. You know, it was, this was not a always pleasant experience. <laughs> right. In fact, the, the you know, to, to commend it to someone, you would have to say, be up for the unpleasantness because that is evident at, at many turns, not every turn, but at, 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 at many. Um, you, you're right that the sort of sense of, of barbed wire compound where, where our hotel was, the uh, place in Papadetto where we, we went to after the trek and then again to fly out from the northern part of, of, of the country was, was uh, you know, you, you go to the, the grocery store and and it's in a wired compound where they open a gate for your vehicle to go in and then close it behind you and and you have a sense of 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 predators watching you and and, and waiting for you to to misstep so they could kind of grab your money or, or or cause harm so that all of that is is discomforting the trek itself is through through um, um, beautiful terrain that is, it asks everything of you. And, and the, 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 the trek is about 60 miles uh, on foot, and it can take anywhere from five or six days to if it is raining, and we, we had little rain, we were fortunate in that regard. It could take twice that long if it's pouring, and, and to keep in mind that, that in September of 1942, the, the rain in Papua New Guinea in the area of the Owen Stanley Range, which is the mountain range the Kokoda Trail goes over, was the, the biggest dump of rain they've ever had in, in that, that country on, on, on record. And, and these were soldiers fighting in those conditions. And, and we often reminded ourselves, those of us on the trek, that we had porters carrying our gear. The, the, the soldiers fighting had 60 pounds on their back and they were carrying a weapon and, and bullets that, that weighed a lot. And they were going in, dressed in, in you know, we, we, we could dress today and pretty light stuff that keeps the rain off and still keeps you warm. And, and, and they didn't have that. They were, they were dressed in stuff that when it got wet, it was drenched and weighed them down. And with all of that, they were being shot at. So, you know, every once in a while, one of us would gripe about, Oh, not another hill. And gosh, this feels vertical. And, and, you know, like straight up. Um, and we just look at each other and say, shut up. Like, do not complain. First of all, nobody's shooting at us. And, 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 you would, couldn't help but but put yourself in the place of, of others, and it, it motivated you to, to stop whinging and and get on with the climb. 
but it's also a place that because of the landscaping, you've got maybe 5,000 feet of elevation change and you're up, down, up, down, up, down. And often you'll have, you know, what we, People who hike know from other situations here, they were just more plentiful, what are called false peaks. And you'd see and you'd say, oh, there's the peak. We're maybe an hour away, maybe two hours away. What you didn't see was that you'd go over the hill and there'd be a deep valley and another peak. And when you got to the top of that, there'd be another valley. So you might've been five, six hours away from something that looked 45 minutes in the distance. And and, uh, that that was trying as you'd have long days, you would make, we would average uh, less than um, uh, mile and mile, one mile an hour. Keep in mind that if you went out for a walk right now, you're probably walking three miles an hour, just at a general pace. So we would be doing a mile an hour. Go out a little bit later today and try and walk at the pace of one mile an hour. And you feel like you're you're stuttering down the street and that's what that's what it was like so you know you what could you tell you you stopped at this site called the bomana war cemetery was yeah. this where monks saw his father's face or no uh, so at, at the start we were at the, the bomana grave site which is okay. that actually is really interesting um in in, in and of its Self, because when people were killed along the trail, whether they're Japanese or, or Australian or in other parts, if they were American, they were often covered over or left where they fell. There wasn't much that one could do, and even the graves that were done were, were, were shallow. So after the war, a special crew from Australia, from the, the armed forces, went to find all of the, the, the remains and take them to a what is a, a British Commonwealth or Commonwealth grave site. And, and that is the Bamana Cemetery that you, you mentioned. And there, one of the saddest things was when you, you, know, you, you go by all of the different, the different markers and, and you see the, the, the years of, of, of the person. And, and that's when it struck me that how many of them were 19 years old or 20 years old. And you think of the, the lives unlived. But one of the, the harrowing things of the time we spent at that cemetery, which was at the beginning of our, our trek, was the number of crosses. And there are something like maybe 3,000 graves there. And there are a couple hundred crosses that on them says simply, known only to God. And that signifies that they have the remains of a soldier, but they've not been able to identify the name that goes with the remains. The other side of that, that I, and I write about this in Walking with Ghosts of Papua New Guinea, and it's part of the, the ghosty thing, was that there's a, a Japanese soldier I write a, a, a fair amount about, and he uh, goes through really traumatic situations, but he's one of the survivors. He gets back to Japan, becomes quite a successful business person. And he gives all of that up, leaves his family behind, and goes back to Papua New Guinea to find the, the, the bones, the remains of the Japanese soldiers, his, his mates, 
his his comrades, and he he try he finds them. And keep in mind, this is decades later. So what he's finding is maybe with a metal detector because there's a belt buckle or a metal or um, some sort of insignia part of a uniform. But the the rest is all deteriorated, and he he either. Uh, does a, a prophecy, a, a Buddhist-style burial uh, on site or cremates uh, the remains, or if he can identify who the, the, the soldier was, he takes the remains back to the family in Japan. And this fellow became known as the Bone Man of Kokoda, and he repatriated hundreds of, of remains of hundreds of, of soldiers. So you've got that, that dynamic at at, uh, at play. So the Bomana gravesite was an orientation. It was, it was, you know, a week or eight days later at a place called Ishirava, which is at the end of our trek, which is actually where the um, Japanese had sort of landed, made their way inland, and there were major battles there. That's where there is a, a monument in tribute to the uh, fallen Australians and to the uh, to, to, to the fighting, and that's where one saw what he he took to be the the face of his father. Which I should say, and I write about this in the book. He committed to me that he would follow up with the the historians in the Armed Services Division of the Australian Forces uh, and try and find out that was his father. When he got home, um, uh, he was over that and absolutely refused to to try and identify if that was his dad. But, but in his heart, he believes it was. So you use the term war tourism when you talk about um, the Bomana War Cemetery. And, and earlier you made the comment that you're walking up these hills and realize that you're not being shot at. So there is, you know, if I can use the word vacation, because that is the way I always view my trip, you know, this vacation for you or this trip was not, you didn't approach it to be entertained, to get relaxation, to, to feel comfortable. You actually put yourself in this uncomfortable situation. And to use your words, you said memories aren't made from long, hot showers. They're made from quick, cold ones, uh, which I think you're probably speaking largely to just going through some pain, whether it's emotional or physical. Yes. How do you think that this experience, no, experiences in general, war tourism, seeing the pain of the past, going through it, trying to relive it, how do you think that that alters you for the, a human for the long term? Like, why is that a valuable experience to go through? Interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm going to think out loud here because I haven't been asked that. And I, 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 I like that notion because often when we, when we see a battle site, take Civil War battle sites in, in the United States, they're sort of animated, relived with people dressed as though they're fighting the battles and nobody gets hurt. If we go to a, a, a war museum and I've, I've gone to them in all sorts of Eastern European countries or, or, or elsewhere where you, again, you, you feel a little embarrassed that you didn't know more about the hardships that people went through or how they were persecuted. And I, I think that 
exposing oneself to, as a traveler, to where there were, were fights, where people died, where they were overrun, where they were, were, were abused, where they were, were, were hurt, killed, whatever. Uh, first of all, it makes one feel, oh my, my goodness, uh, any complaints I've got in life uh, are minor and I best shut up about them given what those people have gone through. But it also makes you realize that, that, that this is rolling history. We, we will have bad things yet again that are visited upon a, a nation or the world, um, you know, whether it's, it's disease or it's military conflict or it's, it's people overrunning a little corner of the world and we watch it on the evening news. They're, they're, um, there's a lot of hardship out there. And, and so an importance of, of war tourism is that the traveler inserts themselves into really um, discomforting information. And you can do some preparatory work, but when you're in the moment and the knowledge comes to you and you think, my, my, this, where I am, this actually happened. And, and I'm here with a certain choice. Nobody forced me to go on this. Nobody forced me to go to Timbuktu, which I did, or to climb Mount Ararat, which I did. Nobody forced those. But others have been put with a, a military persuasion into those circumstances. And, and there's, there's an opposite side. And it's not a rugby game. It's not a soccer match. It's, this isn't American football. This is with one side scores, the other side dies. And, and that is, it's alarming. It just cuts to the quick of you. It, that there's something in your soul that, 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 that it just rumbles in your belly and, and, and you know that you are changing as a person and you, at least for the following days, maybe a month for a while, um, you are changed. You're more self-aware and you're more aware that others have sacrificed for um, the, the pleasantries that we have in our daily life, food, cinema, whatever. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Knowing the sacrifice that we're all reaping the benefits of. I think also, if I could answer my own question, it, it does teach you gratitude and perspective mm -hmm. when you're dealing with, you know, like right now we're all socially isolated, I guess you could say for, um, from the coronavirus, And it's, easy and of course in the world the the age of social media people are taking to facebook and all kinds of things to talk about you know what we're going through and how hard it is um uh, but it is you know it, it, when you think about this trip and i read about this trip and um other just historical i recently read a book about you know the rwandan genocide and a woman who hid in a bathroom for three months, you know, it just, it helps you kind of understand that, you know what, people suffer all, you know, that there's a deep human history of suffering and, um, we can do it. We can do it. You know, I, I saw a, uh, little sort of poster picture of a couch, um, just, just within the last week and it just had a little descriptive above it. And it said, our grandparents, went to war so we could have the life we live. And now we're being asked to sit on a couch 
yes. so that they can live. And then below it, it said, we can do this. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can all subscribe to Travel Nuggets. And, and spend your time on the exactly. listening to travel stories because one day we will be able to travel again. Um, so on a lighter note, let's talk about the pa- Papua New Guinea people, ha- pa- Papuans? Yes, we- Papuans, yes. Well, I guess pronounced a number of different ways, but you, you, you hit it, right? So it wasn't all bleak and sad. Um, yeah, I, I want you to tell the story. This, I actually was very nervous as I was reading this. Um, you, your porters played a trick on you, your guides. Um, there is uh, <laughs> stories about cannibalism in the history of Papua New Guinea. Um, they are uh, true, but in the, the past, uh, but they had a little fun with you. <laughs> they, they did, and it's actually one of my favorite parts of, of, the the book in in a couple of ways what one being that that well it, the, the here's the sort of the peter rabbit version of it is that the, the, the background is that of course papua new guinea and, and, and new guinea itself well known with stories of cannibalism headhunting and and as natural to them as as you know people of faith in in the united states going to church on a sunday and and it has ritual and belief and it's it's others would 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 uh, kneel on a mat uh, toward mecca several times a day cannibalism and headhunting had religious overtones that are as understandable as as those behaviors that i just mentioned but of course to westerners the whole notion of headhunting cannibalism is is fearsome and and so those prejudices try to shape them as one wishes they're kind of there and and when you're trekking and and, and you've got different things on your mind because because there are stories and, and some certain national uh, uh, reputations are, are hard to shake even in modern times so with that in mind um, the, the, the the story that unfolds is is that i uh, and myself and the others, our guide said to us, look, we're in a place called the Moss Forest. And he said, you know, it's probably the longest 10 minute, 15 minute, the longest stretch of flat land. It's a bit rolly, but it's basically flat that we would have in the course of six or seven days. But it's covered with moss like it was wall-to-wall carpeting and and usually moss, you know, most North American places, moss grows on the north side of the tree. But, but here it just grew everywhere and it would hang like Spanish moss, which is wispy and beautiful. And other places, it, it looked like the, the, the size of a cushion. So you've got this every eerie square foot. And what the guy said is, you, know, you follow the trail, but he said, I'm gonna go on ahead and I'll see you about 50 minutes down. But he said, walk in, you know, uh, pick, a, pick a mate and, and, and walk and, and talk. Do a bit of, let your soul talk to you. Think about things as you walk and see it on the path. But he said, because uh, there were a number of us, he said, don't all go together. Leave about five minutes between you two and those two. So a, a couple that were there 
um, went off uh, first. And then um, there was a father and his two sons. They were in their 20s. They went off five minutes later. And then Monk and I went off. But you're, you're alone. Now, sidestep for a moment. This is where I thought Monk and I would talk a little about the trip and the meaning. We're on one of the world's five greatest treks, and wow, but most people don't get to do it because it's so remote. And I thought that's what we'd talk about, but Monk just disclosed in almost um, um, crying terms the angst of him and his dad. So that's what our walk was about. And that was, was the state that my mind was in and his mind was in after we walked for about 10 minutes all alone in this, this haunting, haunting setup. And we came around a corner and we were attacked and a spear went by us and five bare chested grass shorted natives jumped on us and a machete flew right over my, my head. It, it, guy held in his hand into the, the tree beside me and Monk and I cowered. We were just almost to the point of, of you know, just whoa, 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 whoa. We were in absolute shock and we knew we'd been set upon and we knew other stories of trekkers having been attacked in Papua New Guinea. And while the trekkers were spared, um, the really savage stuff happened to to their, their porters, and these were tribal skews that were, were going. So we had this in our mind. And we were beyond frightened. We thought we were done. And then Monk spotted and recognized one of the porters, and he called him <laughs> out viciously, as, as I have in the book. He calls him out <laughs> and, and swears at him. And the five Papua natives absolutely collapsed in hilarity. They were our porters and they had us on and they saw the fear in our eyes and knew what was going on in our hearts and our bowels. They knew all of that was happening and they absolutely had us and they collapsed on top of us laughing hilariously. <laughs> well, and this is a testament to your writing. So for all the listeners out there, Rick has several books. He is a phenomenal writer. As I was reading this, I was I was like anxious because I've I'd had him on this podcast several times. I thought, what happened? What happened? And uh and it obviously turned out to be a big joke, but it was so well written. I was on the edge of my chair and um I just I just thought that was just a delightful um it just showed you about, you know, they, they, they were, they were very solemn when they needed to be, but had fun with you. <laughs> well, and to the, the, your, uh, your use of solemn, um, you, you'll, you'll remember from, from the book because this, this, this was them. They, they sang in the morning. They, they you'd wake up to the porters who were always a bit distant from where we were camped or in a thatched hut or wherever we were on a, a bit of a porch, you would wait to their singing. And at night, when they made sure we were done, and every night for us ended with a, a fire, and we would talk around it, and we'd talk a bit about the day and how achy we were, whatever whinging we had. But they then would be getting ready 
for them to go to bed, knowing that they didn't have many hours sleep before they'd be up to prepare for us. And you would hear their singing. And I, I would say Papuan males have lovely voices. And there was a, a time when some kids, we were at, at a, in a little village and, and kids showed up uh, with, a, a, I guess, let's say a school teacher. And there might have been a dozen kids. And they, they came in and they, they were across from us. And, and it was just, we'd finished our dinner, which as you say, we, we, we weren't looking for great food. We had freeze-dried food because you got to carry it all because you can't eat their, their, from their garden. They just don't have enough of it. So we'd finished our dinner and they came along and they, they sang for us just three, four songs, one in English, the others in their language. And then they did what, what I heard um, maybe four times, five times on the trip. They, uh, they sang their national anthem. And I would say very few of us, certainly not me, have ever heard the Papua New Guinea national anthem. And it's lovely, but it's never sung at a sports championship because they're not on the podiums. It's, it's not something you see in international uh, events or usually at political events or anything like that. So, so we're unfamiliar with it. It is one of, and you can Google this and, and, and enjoy it, but it, it is one of the, 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 the most beautiful, heartfelt national anthems. It's, it's simple, and, and in their voices, which I, I underline, are unusually nice. And, and there's a, a certain, I wouldn't, the words not I'm looking for isn't vibrant, but it, it's, it's, it's kind of an infectious, you want to sing along, even though you might not know the words. It just works as a national anthem. And I would say that very few other national anthems work as well and, and, and are as, as singable. And they do it so well. And it is, it is them. And they, when they do it, you feel they're sharing it with you. And, and that makes you really proud of them. Well, I'm going to have to look it up. I haven't looked it up yet. Um, yeah. Well, I wanted to fact check one last thing before I wrap up here, but it was um, the island was I guess discovered I know that that's not the appropriate term in 1526 by a Portuguese slave trader and Papua means fuzzy hair in Portuguese Island. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, 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 the New Guinea comes because a later explorer thought it reminded him of, um, of Guinea off of, uh, off of Africa where he had, huh. had sailed. But the, the Papuans have frizzy hair. And the, 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 during the war, the uh, Papuan, the Papuans helped both sides because sometimes they were employed, but the, the bulk of them helped the Australian soldiers and then the American soldiers. And, and um, they, they were called fuzzy wuzzies because of their hair. Now, fuzzy wuzzies is a, a, a term from way, way back, um, you know, 150 years ago um, out of Africa. And it was, it was, it was a, a disparaging yeah. term. But it, it, it grew to, to be one of, of respect. And in fact, because the fuzzy wuzzies, the Papuan porters, carried so many of the wounded Australians to safety or brought food supplies or, or helped move munitions, whatever they did, they were lifesavers. 
So to the Australians, they, they became known as the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels. We actually met one of the last two living Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels um, when we were on our trek, and, and he now has died, and, and the other elder has, has also passed away. So the Papuans do have fuzzy hair. Um, the, the, the Papua New Guinea name came about as, as you said. Um, people have lived there for 50,000 years, and yet they lived in pockets. So they were, they were pocket tribes. They, they could be in, in a valley, but they had no need to go up and over the mountain to see the people in another valley. They didn't know they were there. They, they had no need for trade or commerce. They, they didn't have to do battle. I and mean, when they did it, it was often more sport. They didn't have this, let's assemble more land uh, approach. And they didn't feel that, that uh, somebody was going to encroach on their territory because there, there was lots of land. Or they would have a, a little pocket of territory on, on the ocean shore or, or up a river. So today in our world, there are something like 4,500 living languages, right? Still spoken, whether that's the different dialects in Inuit and Northern Canada or, or whatever. Around the world, there are about 4,500 living languages. 824 or something like that, over 800 of those living languages are in fact spoken in Papua New Guinea. So you, they've got like, like, like uh, under 1% of the world's population. The only other country that has that many living languages. Oh, can I guess? Right. And look at yeah, there's yeah. a billion people. So that, 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 that tells you about the complexity of the people just in that little and that factoid tells you about the how difficult to 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 manage a country like that to to get interwoven cultural fabrics and and, and it's just it's a very complicated country uh, and and has its danger but it has its wonders in, a, in there are places villages that people can go and visit they they have have some of the most apparently I'm not a scuba diver but they have some of the most beautiful dive sites anywhere in the world and reefs that are unimaginably populated by, by the greatest variety of, of colorful fish. So there, there's much to, to encourage people to, to go and try and learn about the country, but it is complex. And, and what I hope to have achieved with walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea is to give some context of the country to people that maybe will be armchair travelers and in a vicarious way can learn about a, a wonderful people in a, in a wondrous country. And just a wonder, a very interesting piece of history that in the World War II history that affects us today, you know, that we, we yes. didn't realize happened. So Absolutely. it is a great book. Um, all of Rick's books are available on his website, rickandinson.com. And before I let you go, I have one question. Um, so in your books, you often write about your tradition of getting a haircut wherever you go. And you did do that in Papua New Guinea. What do you, what is one thing that you always do when you come back from a trip, when you are home? Uh, well, and first of all, I would say thank you for mentioning the, the books because Amazon has been terrific. Barnes and Noble have been 
terrific. I mean, bookstores around the United States have, have been supportive. And today you can get, get uh, lots of stuff uh, so easily online, which is, is great. And, and my first three books are audio books as well as, you know, ebooks and, and print books. And that just makes the, from a storyteller's point of view, the, the, the writers need readers. And, and, and so that's, that's nice. I appreciate you you mentioning it. You're right. I I, I do. Uh, one of my books is to Timbuktu for a haircut, and and that was a, a motivation in part for for that journey. So when I get home, I, I I'm I'm a note taker. I'm, I don't keep a journal, but I I do try in the month or two after some journeys to try and make sense of it. And and to me that that is trying to capture vignettes or look at snippets of, of conversation and just play with that in dialogue. And that I do as a, an avocation periodically and, and only on five occasions, including one for a book that's, that's uh, to be published. Um, it, it's forthcoming now, but, but occasionally I find that the, those musings on paper uh, have the makings of perhaps a book and then I explore it. So that's something when I do when I come home. I don't take a lot of photographs. Munt took a lot of photographs on this. Um, in my book, Route 66 Still Kicks, Peter, my, my uh, travel buddy, uh, he took a lot of photographs and that, that brought back um, um, information that I needed once I started to write. But I'll say I was back eight months from the Route 66 journey before uh, I, I realized I, I had the makings of a book. So I, I, I don't come home and much as I think I would go out, come back from Vietnam, go out for Vietnamese food in a restaurant and, and ponder the trip. I don't, I don't do that, but I do begin to uh, doodle, if that could be the word, though I, I don't sketch, but, but doodle out um, some of my remembrances. Well, thank you for spending so much time with us again. You are always a great guest, very informative and definitely inspire more travel once we're able to do it again. When your next book comes out, we'll have you back. <laughs> thank you very much. I'd like to do that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Travel Nuggets. I'll post more information about this episode, including helpful links on the Travel Nuggets website. Please visit travelnuggetspodcast.squarespace.com. There, you can check out additional episodes or download them wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd love to hear your feedback and ideas. Email me at travelnuggetspodcast at gmail.com or join the Travel Nuggets Facebook group to share your thoughts and ideas. See you next time.